0: Lou will not start the podcast without a crowd cheering. Oh wow! Well, wow! I won't stop. Ah. Welcome to the oh. Carl Landry Record Club. <laughs> ah, it's good to talk to you today as we talk about our couple albums as we normally do. I went through. Do you do you look at your Spotify Wrapped? Did you have one this year or whatever? Did you look at it?
1: I I looked at the artist version. Okay. I guess I took the more uh, uh right. egotistical uh Yeah,
0: not the user uh, version.
1: Lane of it. Yes, yeah, so I saw that, which is always interesting. Uh I haven't looked at the, I'm kind of uh excited for that actually. I haven't looked at the user one yet.
0: Well, there was one that, that I looked at, I, I have both obviously, and I looked at the user one and there's at the end, it sort of defines you as like, it, it talks about, like it, I guess it categorizes you as to a certain kind of listener. And mine was a uh, hypnotist, which means that you listen to albums beginning to end, which ah. I thought, which I thought was apt because of the pod. You know what See, I mean?
1: That's a direct reflection of what we're doing here.
0: We love albums on the podcast. What we do is we we every week we pick out one that we love, that Mutlu or I love, and one that you love. And we uh, we listen deeply several times and then talk about them and find stuff that we like about them. If you want to suggest an album, you can go to our website, Club.com. You can leave it in the Apple Podcast Reviews. You can leave it in the Spotify box right under the player there, or just visit us on social anywhere there. And there's a link to suggest. An album. We love the suggestions that you give us. We have two albums today. My is my week. So I picked an album, listener album, and we try to pick out a new song every week. So we don't just get stuck in the old stuff that we love. And Mulu picked out a new song. So two albums today. Mine is Avenge Sevenfold's self-titled album from 07. I didn't plan these for these two albums to be from the same era or whatever. They just, they just did. I was scanning and and I I didn't I didn't realize it until I went back and looked that they were from the same right around the same time. So listener album is from Ryan, it is Panic at the Disco's Pretty Odd which came out in 08. Ryan says, Ryan went to social and uh, suggested it there, sent us sent us a note there. Not sure if this is the right way to submit an album but here you go. Panic at the Disco's Pretty Odd. Came out when I was in college, me and my friend group and now wife all loved this album. Since then I have never heard a song off the album in an organic way. I know the band split up in some way after this album, and I have no idea how the album was received when it came out, and I'm always afraid to look it up to learn that I was just too stoned to realize if it was good or not. When I <laughs> listen to the album now, I still like it, but I'm not sure if it's due to nostalgia or the album being good. I'm interested to hear what you guys think, and could you let me know how this album was reviewed? I would appreciate it. Stay Free My Goose, Ryan.
1: That's ah, all. nice. I like there when people go. throw that in at the end. The
0: Stay yeah. Free My Goose, yep. Yeah. And then Mootloo picked a new song, which I think is really inter- a really interesting new tune from Lola Young. And the song is conceited.
1: Yeah, so, I had a feeling you would uh, be intrigued by by that mm-hmm.
0: one. Yeah, I like it. I like it. It definitely it it touches on some. So I think, and it actually, it's a new song that touches on I think some things that both of us tend to like. I Absolutely. think there's elements, there's mootloo elements in there, and Spike elements in there. Both hybrid. It's a, hybrid. So, it's a perfect yeah, hybrid. it's a hybrid. Well, you, let's start with Event Sevenfold. Then we'll do Lonely Young. Then we'll do uh, yes. Panic in the Disco. So, so, so. So. Event Sevenfold, crazy to think now we're we're doing, as we, we do these, there are some bands that arrived when I was already an adult and now have been around for more than two decades, which is crazy to think that Event Sevenfold has been around for almost 25 years now, which is crazy. They got to get, they started in 99 in Huntington Beach, California. They, they okay, so they have stage names now. They didn't have stage names when they started, so... The they started as Matt Sanders, who, who is M Shadows, the lead singer, the Rev, who is James Sullivan, who was the drummer at the time, uh, Zach Baker, who is known now as Zachy Vengeance, and a guy named Matt Went, who didn't stay around long enough to get a stage name. And their the band name, if if you're is is a pretty obvious biblical reference to Cain and Ab- Cain and Abel. They are not a religious band; just liked the like the the phrase of sevenfold. It is a as a metal band it is a about as cool a band it's name a i think as you can get if, if, yeah. it's
1: it's right it's it just sounds right
0: yeah 100% so they started off as they have evolved into the band they are today and they still exist today mm-hmm. they are even more how they are on this album today but started out as like just a straight ahead metalcore band which is i'm trying to de- help you with metalcore so there was no singing in the beginning it
1: was all screaming um, and it was August Burns Red. I think would be qualify yeah. as metalcore.
0: Yeah, August Burns Red metalcore. I would say that August Burns Red has more sort of like classical metal influences than Event Sevenfold did. But avenge Sevenfold sort of morphed into that more. So Event Sevenfold, but but yes, August Burns Red metalcore. So they get together, they do a three song demo. They got signed to a an indie label in Belgium and right after that that is when they took their their stage names known as they are now and released recorded and released their debut album called Sounding the Seventh Trumpet and that is when another another member who still is in the band today Sinister Gates joined the band they leave the Belgian label. They signed with Good Life Records, which is an indie label in California, and they re release that album and tour a lot, do some metal tours. Uh, I think one was Shadows Fall, Mushroom Head, and then they did the Warp Tour. And they've always existed in this sort of, as metal metalcore bands can exist in the metal world, but also in the punk Warp Tour kind of world, as which Avenge Sevenfold has always sort of, you know, gone in between the two has been accepted i think in both eventually the bass player who never got a stage name left and um uh johnny christ joins the band who is still in the band and then they release waking the fallen is their their, uh, an, their second album, which starts to really generate a uh, buzz and they do warp Tour again. And I think the combination of them as a band, and I also think having a cool name and great merch helps bands at this level a lot because if it is cool to wear your shit, it's like free marketing. They've got a really cool aesthetic and I always thought that that helped them. I think that help, has helped certain bands and they end up getting signed to Warner Brothers Records get a major label deal. And that is when City of Evil comes out in 05. That is the first album in which M Shadows is not screaming the whole time starts this singing that you hear on this album so city of evil is the album before that album he got a vocal coach guy named ron anderson who also trained chris cornell did some work with chris cornell and axl rose and he said that the goal now there was there were interviews at the time where he said that a doctor told him if he kept screaming the way that he was screaming it was going to be like bad for him he wasn't going to be able to sing anymore i don't know how true that is the the but he he developed this style which is still gritty and is still metal but clearly not screaming all the time the screaming is is more in places than it is you know early on
1: that makes sense to me i'm always intrigued to see how vocalists can hold that up over years and years of singing like that especially on tour because that style of singing has to shred your vocal cords
2: yeah so I maybe think- there's
1: a way to do it without harming yourself but i'm sure if you don't do it correctly, if you do it in a way that is unhealthy, that could absolutely sing like that constantly night in night out on tour could totally destroy your voice. So I remember
0: the two years I was in a band and we did songs that had screaming in it and I didn't know how to scream. There is a way to scream and there is a way to do this that is like that I've seen guys do it that they're screaming. But if you if they have a microphone, it's more of a noise that they're making than it is a scream like they're not loud. If that makes any sense, the sound is not coming. It is not like this. The, you're not forcing everything. But when I was in that band, I would listen to like old air checks of when I was. I was a music, a radio DJ at the time, and you could hear how raspy my voice was. I remember once at practice, I like spit out like blood from screaming. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. I didn't know what I was doing.
1: So you were definitely not using that correctly. <laughs> yeah, I was not wow. doing it
0: correctly. But 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 City of Evil, so it City of Evil debuts at 30 on Billboard and they had a single called Bat Country which ended up being big on rock radio, really huge on MTV. They end up getting. I think they end up winning the MTV New New Artist of the Year award, and and Backcountry becomes big. And City of Evil is the first album of this iteration of of Avenged Sevenfold. It takes a, like a leap from metalcore to. I think it introduces more sort of eighties elements. We did one album that I always thought City of Evil and this album remind me of the uh, Skid Row's album Slave to the Grind. All oh, right. Their second album, which I think sort of, you know, had that sort of middle ground between metal and hard rock, and also that yes, I can scream, but I can scream on key. I guess is something. Yeah, it reminds me. There's a way to
1: scream where it is just a sound. Yep. And then there's a way to scream where you still hear the melody in it. Yeah, I'm thinking of a kill switch engage.
0: Yep. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. But I when he screams, yep. yeah,
1: which is that was one of my favorites as far as these heavier records,
0: metalcore, definite metalcore. Yeah,
1: when that singer screams, he sing he screams with a melody. In it. Yes, uh, it's not just like the the harsh noise. I think there's a kind of a big difference between the two.
0: So that was Howard Jones, who was the second, the, there are two singers from Killswitch Engage. There was originally was Jesse who left the band. Then we did the, I think we did the end of Heartache is the album that we did. Which was and Howard then,
1: Jones, I think.
0: That's Howard Jones. And right. then the original singer is back in Killswitch Engage now. But yes, absolutely. So then they go to work on this album, which is another step toward the sort of, I don't want to call it prog, but there is this Tim Burton-esque darkness, like cartoonish darkness to the album. And there's one song in particular that we'll get to on this album that has it. But it's not just metal. It's not just hard rock. There is like this other thing that they are doing, this mood that they create, uh, that almost the, the, the music sounds like the merch looks.
1: Does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean that means you've created some really interesting merch if you yeah. can do that.
0: Yes, absolutely. So this is self-titled. They produce it themselves. It debuts at number four on Billboard. It it has, I I think it, I don't know if it's it's sold almost a million copies so far, and. This, this is also the last album who where the, the Rev, their original drummer, appeared on who died in 09 from a drug overdose. So they've had a couple of drummers since The Rev, but he was an important songwriter in, in Event Sevenfold and wrote one of the, I think, most lasting songs on this album. Uh, there are, I think we've mentioned before, there are albums when bands evolve and change over years. Uh, and Radiohead and Tool are two bands that I use as good examples. A lot of times there's an album right in the middle where they are in equal parts the uh, the band that they were and the band that they would become. And I think those are the perfect albums. Because, okay,
1: Computer is what I think is for yes. its Radiohead. Yeah. Okay,
0: Computer, Anima for Tool. Like Before... Before, it, it's it's usually when bands get a little more experimental and less sort of song focused, and they go more and more in that direction. The music becomes interesting, but I don't it, I don't connect to it as much. This I think is the perfect Avenged Sevenfold album. I think this is was at their their height. I think the playing is amazing. Like the guitar playing is obviously amazing. The drumming is is I think in a lot of ways creates the entire signature of the band. Like the rev is so important on this. And his voice is so unique. You know, I think there are a couple of singers in history that you could point out that there are similarities to, but when you hear him, you know that it's him, you know? And, and I think that the album, I, I, for me, I kind of, I kind of like, I I like a ton of the songs on the record, but like there, it comes down to four songs that I think define the, the album to me. Um, and hop in whenever you want, instead Mm -hmm. of just, you know, so, this album leads in with just a a monster attack. With
1: yeah, I, I have it yeah, right here. Uh, I have a whole claim. set of notes for it for critical acclaim. Yeah.
0: So yeah. what did you think of Critical Acclaim, which is the first song in the album and was actually, I'll tell you a funny story about it as a single, was released as sometimes rock and metal bands, their first signal, single will be a cred single that they don't ever expect to be successful on radio, but they put it out as a single and it's always quickly followed up with the, you know, if, if you're a band that has like the credibility to your original audience is important, I think what the label does is say, Let's do the super heavy one first so the kids know that you're still the same band and then we'll follow up with the radio hit. So Critical Acclaim was the first one. Well, you what said you Monster
1: think? Attack, right? Yeah. And here I say Monster Intro that harkens back to 80s arena rock and even the hair bands a little yes. bit. Like, uh, because I would have never placed them in the metalcore uh arena because I just listening I mean, to this. Yeah. Just listening to this, I wouldn't have had that frame of reference. I guess I can hear it in bits and pieces, but they're so far removed from that on this. And you talked about the drummer. Yes. The the, the, the relentless rhythm track and the guitar riffs just they it's like it's hypnotic. It pulls you in. The way they play, the way they lock in, and his singing is kind of covers the whole gamut. You get the more sung out kind of hard rock metal style then there's the more rhythmic component to, yeah. to how he sings, and then and there's a like sort of a bridge where it's like almost like a brighter sort of pop rock. So he kind of covers like all three of those. I also think one thing about this song that is represented the whole album is the arrangements. Yeah, their arrangements are, are so crazy. meticulous. Yeah. yeah, and actually in a different way, August Burns Red has that because I was thinking about the instrumental version of that one record we did. But some heavier bands really put a premium on. The arrangement and it's, you know, section to section, what's happening rhythmically will shift. The feel of it will shift. Uh, one of the other things that I love about this album is the guitar harmonies.
0: Oh, they're it's so cool, aren't amazing. they? Some yep. of the
1: best guitar harmonies I've ever heard. And then one last thing I'll say about this song is, and this was part of what hooked me in right out of the gate was the lyric was the lyric the anti war commentary.
0: Yeah, uh, well, which uh, I the, thought was the pro powerful. soldier, and it, it's it's interesting because right, they've always right. been they've always been military forward you know supportive but like
1: but, but but critical of the military industrial complex yes a hundred percent yeah there because there are a few lines you're right and I, I like how they walk that line actually they do of supporting yeah. the people that are actually out there fighting but yep. not the forces that lead to them being there because it says how does it feel to know that someone's kid in the heart of America has blood on their hands fighting to defend your rights so you can maintain a lifestyle that insults his family's existence I was like I heard that I was like wow this yep. is what a what a powerful statement to make on your lead track uh, along with everything that's happening musically it's
0: interesting because i was looking for it i couldn't find it we played this song at q101 when i was working in chicago and they came in and did so the single that the label wanted everybody to play was almost easy and i loved critical acclaim and i was like a Do whatever I want, PD at the time. Like, I was like, wild guy. I was like, we're fucking playing Critical Acclaim. (laughs) It was like our number one most requested record on the phones. It was never going to research, but like people fucking loved it and we played it a lot. Like, we, it was our most played record for a while. Avenge did not do a lot of in studio interviews, but they came to Q101 because we were playing Critical Acclaim and they said it in the interview. But the most interesting, I just, I, I, and I, I don't want, like, I I don't like talk about politics or whatever. It's so interesting to hear them in the interview present something that today would sound almost like, like they would be labeled super conservative. You know what I mean? Like the way way that they are, you know, uh, uh, anti-political correctness was what uh, it used to be called or whatever. And, you know, anti-elite and all of that kind of stuff. But at the time- It's just a weird how everything's changes. This is like 07 or whatever. It felt very like DIY groundswell. It almost reminds me of Oliver Anthony in the way that it is individual and and every man focused and like the the way that that sort of language has become coded over time because it never struck me as that at all when I was when I like I was like these are this is a band fighting for you know the 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 forgotten people or whatever is the way that it felt to me at the time.
1: Yeah, which interestingly for someone like me who's like a a Bernie guy first and foremost, yeah, progressive, yeah. more left leaning, yeah. it's the same. I, I uh, appreciate this message because this message message is about showing compassion for people who are in the thick of it, who are yes. losing their lives, showing compassion for their families but criticizing the war machine yes, that uh, that is behind it. And actually, to me, that's not – well, I guess there is a certain conservative perspective that holds that, but there's also a leftist perspective that views that the same way.
0: Well, if you get far enough left and far
1: enough right, they sort of meet at the same spot. Yeah, like It's somewhere kind of – yeah, there are a few wh- intersecting points.
0: Well, know? there are in terms of like if you go full libertarian versus like there are like – if you get far enough on both sides in the back, all of a sudden you're like, oh, we're kind of we're kind of like saying the same thing in, in different ways. And I, I think there is some of that. There's also like lines um uh, later on. It's just funny again to look at today, um, the the second verse um all the way we, from the east to the west we got this high society looking down on on their very foundation constantly reminding us that our actions are the cause of all their problems pointing pointing their fingers in every direction uh blaming their own nation for who wins the elections they've never contributed a fucking thing to the country they love to criticize like i it is you know what i mean like it yeah. this, and this is such a fucking monster first song on an album i'm just it is to this day I've listened to the song a billion times and I never get sick of it it's like a great workout song Um, what a a way to start an album
1: what a way to kick off a record
0: (laughs) so as like so that is one of the four songs that I that I think sort of defines this album another one is Afterlife Which is, do you have that now one written down too, too. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. So the thing that this song shows, I think, is it is a monster hook, which shows their ability at the time for pop songwriting. You this, know, is, uh, this is
1: uncanny. Okay. It showcases their abilities as, as hook writers.
0: Yeah, and I it's, have that,
1: we we like keyed in on on this. I guess I keyed in on some of the same things that you saw yeah. as being special about the record.
0: It's a really cool tune, and it's got my favorite bridge and chorus on the album, I think. It's not my favorite song on the album, but it's an amazing uh, an amazing song. I remember it was shortly after, it was this same album cycle. They were on OzFest, and we did this contest at WISP when I was working there, when I think it was for Afterlife, because Afterlife was a single, maybe it was Gunslinger, where people had us send in videos of them air drumming, and we picked the best air drummer, To meet Avenged Sevenfold and (laughs) air drum the song for them, and we did that. They were good. They good. They were good. Sports on it, but but afterlife is just a a, just an awesome song. And lyrically, they are interesting. Like this is this is sort of about a guy who has passed away and is looking at mistakes he's made and and things like that. But sort of in a there's this whole like sort of fantasy fantasy nightmare thing happening on the entire album.
1: Yeah, and another song that just shows their ability from a compositional standpoint. Yes. Like these songs feel, it doesn't feel like anything's arbitrary in this music. It feels like composed, but I mean that in the best way possible. Not like it seems generic or uh, sterile in any way. It's just there's a high level of composition because I think there has to be with some of the things they're doing musically and the strings on this one that are kind of there up front. uh, But then come back in the end against, yeah. there's kind of a two vocal line. There's a one moment in the song where I guess he just rec- he recorded both vocals and they're kind of playing off each other. Yeah, And yeah, the yeah. strings kind of dip in. There's like a three-part thing between the two vocals and the strings. Just all these incredible musical moments that are, that to me really set them aside as far as a heavier band. Because I I don't have as much of a frame of reference as you do, obviously. Yeah, But we've done a good number of Metal. heavier bands yeah. at this yep. point. I think they are singular in everything I've heard just because sometimes with the heavier music, I pretty much enjoyed everything we discussed, but there is a predictability. Yeah. Like you kind of know where a song is going to go at some point. You know point. where the
0: breakdown is going to be. You know where the sing's going to be. You know where the scream is going to be. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I don't feel that's the case with this band at all. You There's almost no have
0: no idea where it's coming from almost. it's It's almost like the opposite. Like it's a complete lack of predictability as to which, where each song is going to go.
1: So I wouldn't even, uh, I mean, I think the prog rock thing is actually kind of accurate because yeah. Yeah. I, w- I wouldn't put them squarely in like hard rock or metal. There's something more than that, I think.
0: Yeah, and they've continued to go down that that path. So then the other two songs, I'm curious if you have these as well. It's impossible to talk about this album without talking about a little piece of that one.
1: I like that tune, but that that wasn't one of the ones okay. I singled out. First one, that <laughs> so "A Little Piece of Heaven"
0: is the most Tim Burton esque nightmare <laughs> sort of song that tells a complete story. It's eight minutes long. It feels like a it feels like a, a vampire, and it tells a story about a guy who kills his girlfriend, eats her heart. She comes back to life, kills him, eats his heart. Then they both come back to life, <laughs> get married, and murder people. And it was completely written by the Rev. This is like a Rev masterpiece, and it is one of the. It was I th- I think the, they put it out as a single or something, and MTV banned the video or something like that. That's what they. But it is it is a a legendary song in the canon of of Avenged Sevenfold, and is. Like, as a fucking ride, man. that that's a little a little piece of heaven is a fucking ride,
1: some songs play like short films, like this one audio, does. short films. And yeah, uh, I'm thinking of why am I you went to see her, the girl
0: Oh, discussed. Ethel Kane,
1: Ethel Kane. a lot yeah. of her music is like that, a
0: hundred percent. like yeah. it's
1: right out of a horror movie., yep. uh, how was that show? because I remember you posted about it, but I don't know if we ever really it. it was amazing.
0: It. it was amazing. It was interesting how many people were dressed up in like the theme of Ethel Kane, like in the world of Ethel Kane that she has built, you know what I mean? Where you can't tell what's real and what is storyline and what is her and what is the character of Ethel Kane. And seeing her in some weird venue in the middle of nowhere with people (laughs) dressed up like old-timey horror uh, fans was, was amazing. And a very dedicated fan base lined up two and a half hours before the show, like I spent most of my night waiting in line to get in and then waiting in line for merch. It was a, it was a great show though. She was awesome. It's
1: interesting when an artist based around what they do creates that sort of cult-like phenomenon, oh, almost like a best. Rocky Horror Picture Show kind yes. of situation. Yeah, uh, And it's in their own way. I know you're not a fan, but Ween has that definitely. Uh, I'm sure, yeah. There's a cult-like feeling around them. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, think, I think a group like Man Man, uh, yes, absolutely. our, our same, guy same deal. Honus Honus, you know, yeah, he definitely w- has been able to create that. And it's, sure. only certain bands can do that because mm-hmm. it's, it's something in the music that creates that energy around it. Yeah. And it's
0: up to the, it's, it's so neat how an artist can almost instinctually continue to create that world. And then people latch, all latch onto the same things. And some of it is on purpose. And some of it I think is just a creative decision that, People that, that maybe wasn't... Like, I don't think when Ethel Kane made the record, she set out to be like, okay, this is going to be this creepy thing where everybody's going to dress up and blah, 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 blah. It was a, an artistic decision that she made to make it sound that way. And it resonated in a way that, you know, people people reacted in a certain way, you know, and continue to react.
1: That's interesting because it's not necessarily deliberate on the part of the artist. It's something that happens as a reflection of the music.
0: Yes, it. I think... The mood is deliberate. The artistic decisions are deliberate. But the they're going to react this way is almost impossible to do until you have them. I think to a certain extent, once you have them and they're doing it, you're like, ooh, I could do something fun with this because I know how these people are going to react to this. But I don't think the beginning of it, it's hard to do if you're doing it on purpose. You know, Right, that's the yeah. thing,
1: because then it runs the risk of feeling contrived.
0: Contrived, yep. And then the the, uh, the final song that uh, of the four that I think are the most important on the record uh, to define the album are is Dear God. Which is a country ballad that comes out of nowhere, but is a beautiful country ballad and so neat to hear his voice on a a song like this. It's got a big monster hook. I love ballads, you know, I love ballads, but the song kind of comes out of nowhere and I think sticks out like a sore thumb in a, a super cool way.
1: And another tune that completely sets them aside. Yep. Which totally obliterates any predictability that you might expect from Beyond. Like and one other thing I'll mention is gunslinger. Yeah. Which comes midway through. Now that the first minute and a half has the uh, the quintessential acoustic rock yep. tune that I almost thought of like MTV unplugged or something. Yep. O- occasionally, there's a little bit of like a grunge yeah. feel in there too. It's it's very subtle, but it's there and. It just made me think that this band would probably be great with just voices and a few acoustic guitars. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because sure. I, have they ever done anything like that? Or I could see
0: them I've, doing it. I've never, I've never seen them do anything like that. And by the way, like, I I'd always thought, you know, given the title, Gunslinger is another sort of soldier-type, um, you know, tribute to... Um, so, you know, you've, uh, you've been alone. I've been gone for far too long, but with all they've been through all this time, I'm coming home to you. Like, makes, it is a, is a, I, I think, speaks to that as well. But what a fucking cool tune. And this, yeah, they would be cool unplugged. I wonder if they've ever done anything unplugged. I have I've to imagine they it.
1: have at some point, maybe even if it's like an underplay or something. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've never seen it.
1: It uh, would be interesting to hear some of those guitar harmonies on yeah. just acoustics.
0: Absolutely, 100%. Uh, here we go. Vance Sevenfold full acoustic album on YouTube. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'll have to I'll have to is go. Is that past. a live
1: show or is that like an actual like in studio kind of thing?
0: I don't know. I don't know what it is. I'll let it It makes play, sense you know.
1: to me though cuz you hear this music and you're like there's so much in it. The production is great, but you could peel away the production. There's so much happening within the compositions of the songs that hearing some of this with just acoustic guitars would be interesting.
0: Yeah, uh, this is a cover. Somebody covered um, uh, yeah. an Avenged Sevenfold album acoustically. So, so I'm I'm glad you. It seems like you enjoyed it. Thought it was cool. I I fucking love this record. It has stood the test of time. They're on tour now. Their new album is fucking nuts. It
1: is. Similar to this or totally a total departure?
0: It, it No, it is similar, but they have gone the direction of, like, Little Piece of Heaven or whatever. Like, you listen to the album. You think you can't predict where this album's going. You listen to the newest album. I was, Even I, who I'm a fan of this band, I was like, this is fucking crazy. But they're doing arenas. They still have a big enough fan base to do arenas. They had line doing, arenas. For, yeah, they're doing wow. Prudential Center. In,
1: have in, you seen them live?
0: Yes, but— in the older days. Like I saw them in the city of evil days. I think I saw them on this tour, but I haven't seen them in probably 15 years.
1: Man. So like, I wouldn't necessarily, because I wasn't necessarily aware of this band think, Oh, this is an arena band. Like I can never parse that out. You know,
0: they've held on to the, like they've built the, I think legend of themselves and the mysticism and they're different enough. And they've, they've can they've continued on i I was actually surprised when i saw it too but then when i when i look at their fan base and how passionate and sort of cult like the fan base is it becomes a little more obvious why they would do something like that
1: well makes sense this is a great record really i think maybe my favorite oh wow so far among the heavier albums that you've brought in i think this is kind of moved to the top of the list i think kill switch was probably right there too but uh this one takes the cake I think.
0: Ah, I didn't I did I did not f- see that coming, but I'm glad you enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to do Let's do Conceited from Lolly Young?
2: You don't taste like nothing when I'm so
1: see So I should give a shout out to Delia because okay. she introduced me to this song. She has a number of different playlists that we just listen to sometime. Okay. And I I just kept hearing this song in one of okay. these playlists. And she told me about it. And it was one of those tunes, like the more I heard it, I found myself thinking about it. Mm. Without consciously like honing in on it, I, I was thinking about the track and what she was saying. So I, I said, okay, this is an obvious pick, I think, for the pod. It, it's, it only came out two months ago. Okay. Yeah. So so
0: September, end of September,
1: late September. Yeah. So she's a 22 year old artist from the UK. She's been working for almost a decade now. She's kind of one of these child prodigy kind of artists, I would say. Mm -hmm. She won a national open mic contest in 2016 when she was only 13 years old. And she studied at the famous or some say infamous Brit school, which is a music school in London. And some of the UK's biggest music acts have gone there, including Adele and Amy Winehouse. Oh, wow. wow. So it's, uh, I'd never heard of it before. Reading about it, I was like, wow, I, how come I'd never heard of this before? But apparently some of these big names that have come out of the UK, especially these great female artists, are from there. In 2021, she was nominated for the Brit Award for Rising Star. So her profile, has just been building and building and building. She also is another artist, like as we've seen recently with many artists, who gained an even bigger profile from TikTok. She did these little videos that are snippets of her songs, and that seems to have even propelled her to like a, a bigger audience. She's been releasing singles for a number of years now, but her first full-length just came out earlier this year. It's a record called My Mind Wanders and, T- and Sometimes Leaves Completely. came out in May of this year. So okay. this is her most recent release after that record, just a standalone single just a couple months ago. Now, Getting into the track... Uh, this got me thinking about Marion Hill, the conversation we had with them early on. Okay. Uh, where we talked with Jeremy about, he was talking about how, uh, and this has come up a number of times, but when you attract, when you can just take three or four sounds, yeah, like don't, don't over inundate the track with sound. Take three or four sounds that really work and figure out how they fit together and create space. Mm-hmm. And I think this song is, a, and Marion Hill does that, and I think this track does that in a really special way. You sort of get that, that bass line, which is the, the pulse of the mm-hmm. tune. And then the, the drum pocket is, is pretty steady. It's not like all over the place, but the combination of that solid pocket that the drums have and the bass has just give it that steady propulsion. And then beyond that, you re- for the most part, you just have two different synth sounds, including the one sound that's kind of there wall-to-wall. But something about just that space and that sparse nature of the track with her vocal, it's kind of all you need. Now, about two about halfway through or a little more than halfway through around the two thirty mark all of a sudden the track gets bigger
2: mm-hmm. and they
1: choose that moment to kind of lift it up and 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 inundate the track with sound but then it comes right back i like the general arc and arrangement uh, of this one talking about her vocal there's a resonance and a swagger to her vocal that to me is just so appealing and she does in different ways remind me a little bit of adele remind me a little bit of Amy Winehouse, uh, even a little bit of Duffy who we discussed, you know, these, there's been this just movement of incredibly soulful female artists who've come out of the UK going back, I guess, almost two decades now.
0: Yeah. And not UK, but I, I felt a ton of Billie Eilish in yes, delivery. Yes. yes. How know? can I forget that? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, absolutely. I think there is, there's, there's, I don't remember, I forget who, I think it was when I first heard Billie Eilish and I was like obsessed with the record and I remember playing it for my wife and she was like don't you ever get sick of female artists who sing like this and <laughs> and because because I think she hears it like in the car like there is a a certain like you know we we're talking about Scott Stapp um and sort of it his way of singing becoming the way of rock singing and there is like sort of a a wave of female vocalists who have this sort of like cool, but also swaggy and also rhythmic delivery to themselves and almost like a, um, can almost like talk sing sometimes too. You know, Julia right. Michaels had it and all, all that kind of stuff. So I, I I think her vocal delivery is awesome in this. You know?
1: Yeah. And when you get to that bridge section, that's mainly the vibe, but when you get to that bridge section, she sings out more Yeah, and you do hear that she has a powerful voice so she can belt it out. You know, like an Adele or something, but most of this song is probably more in that that uh, the conversational sort of feel to the vocal because that's the best way uh, to deliver the lyric. And then the lyric of this song is is something you've heard before, but again, I think it's special when you've heard something before but expressed in a completely unique way. Which is, I think, this is a very fresh take on this general concept, basically a messy breakup and those feelings of anger and alienation that with it, And all you got to do is look at the, <laughs> there are great lines throughout this tune, but just the chorus line on this one, you brought me some flowers. I gave them to someone else. You told me that you love me. You're just talking to yourself and I don't want to know. I don't want to hear it. Let yourself out. You're so conceited. I mean, just the, that payoff there is, uh, is great. I mean, and, and I'm, it has me interested to see like what else she's going to do. Cause she's, she's been at it for a while, but she's pretty young and this is a pretty powerful single, I think that, uh, that makes her stand out.
0: Yeah, it's cool. I wrote down the when I first listened to it, I wrote down "Billy Eilish meets Herbie Hancock," like there wow, was wow the Herbie was, thing. <laughs> yeah, there was something like so like '80s experimental R and B to like the the music portion of it. You know, with her vocals laying on top, it is this amazing combination that we just keep talking about of like current current vocal delivery, but with like this old school groove to it that I thought was really, really, like it, this song caught me the first 10 seconds. Like that. It, it, it. That, that
1: just a track. out of the gate. Just those two synth sounds, basically.
0: Totally. It. And then, and then the song itself, it, it does make you wonder. Uh, and I purposely didn't listen to other music from her until we talked about it, but it makes me go, all right, what, what is this person capable of? Because right. if she's capable of this, she's capable of a lot of cool shit. What a neat song
1: yeah and i think i think she's one of those artists that she might be or is right at that point of critical mass where in the next year or two she'll become a much bigger name but right now she's right at that ascension point that's an interesting spot when an artist is there i played a show with adele when she was promoting her first record and it was Early in the album cycle, was, for it, her, for was sure. this at Austin
0: City Limits or was it at South by Southwest or something? Well, like at that? South oh.
1: by Southwest, I played a show with Katy Perry. I played shows oh, right. with Adele and Katy Perry within a few months of each other. <laughs> so I played with Katy Perry in March of two thousand eight because I was on the Manhattan EMI label at the time, and it was like a it was ASCAP showcase, the Publishing Society. The big headliner for that was this girl Yael Naim because she had this song on the Apple commercial. Okay, and and it was her. One other act, Katy Perry and me. I played first. And then Katy Perry went up there as a duo. And she, this was like maybe three or four months before that song hit, I Kissed a Girl. But I remember she closed their set with it. Mm. And you know that feeling? I mean, it's in a room with like industry people, the Driscoll Hotel in Austin. And it's a makeshift stage that they created. But you know, sometimes you hear a song like, oh, that's the single. That's the hit. You know that's the hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just so obvious. And then a few months later, I played with Adele that was around the time her first record come, came out. I don't even think it was a full tour she was doing. I think she was doing some select promotional appearances, and she had a few shows. And uh, we, I did the show with her at the World Cafe. And what I remember thinking about her is that she was like, I don't know, nineteen years old. And uh, I remember talking to her for a while afterwards, and she's like, "Oh, she's like just a young girl." She's like, "She's like yeah, just doing some shows and hanging around." She's like, "I was like so <laughs> casual about everything that was happening for her." And I was like, "She okay? She seems kind of new to this. Like she yeah. has this very low key sort of uh, just yeah, it's chill kind of vibe about everything." Like, little did she know, maybe that she's about to become this like superstar. Yeah, one
0: of the but, biggest stars in the entire world.
1: Yeah, yeah, but at that point, she wasn't though. Not quite yeah. yet. Yeah. And uh, but I just remember being impressed because it was uh, I did like a trio thing with uh, guitar and bass, and I think her was her setup was just her and a keyboard player, and just the command she had on stage. To be that young and mm-hmm. the way she held the audience and how comfortable she was and just the power in her voice was like, was like, wow. But yeah, it's, it's weird to have kind of brushed up against two people who had this like meteoric rise, but like right before. Right it before happened. it happened. Yeah, And I kind of have this feeling, same thing with Lola Young. Like that might be like, we might be right at that point or it's like three to six months away or something. I could be wrong. I don't know, but she feels like she's on that type of ascension
0: yeah this is an awesome tune, awesome tune. definitely going to go listen to more you want to do Panic in the Disco back to the
2: street
0: Yes. came from ryan thanks ryan uh, ryan i can assure you that you didn't only think it's good because you were high so i uh, no, will we'll, we'll were... get that we'll, <laughs> we'll get that out in front i think we can confidently say it's a good
1: record now is this a band you were familiar with or had listened yeah. to yeah
0: yeah now i the first album was what i listened to the most which had their their biggest hit even though they've they've stood the test of time i write sins not tragedies is a song you would you would probably recognize the chorus of. Um, And then this album came out, you know, I would have been more familiar with it if it had come out one year earlier. It came out in 08 when I was back in Philly and I was rock world instead of alternative world. So I remember listening to this album once or twice maybe, but nine in the afternoon was the single that I was mostly familiar with. But yeah, familiar with Panic at the Disco and their their ascent.
1: So for me, this is a band I'd heard of, but in that category of bands that I've heard of but hadn't really listened to until we started doing the podcast. That's a long list now.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But
1: I'm actually surprised that I missed it up until now because I thought this record was phenomenal.
0: Oh, yeah, it's incredible. It's it's really a great
1: great listen, start to finish. And uh, also researching them a bit, it seems like they're the kind of band, kind of like the way you described Avenged Sevenfold, is that constantly pushing the envelope and evolving.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So,
1: give a little backdrop on them. Panic at the Disco was an American rock band from Las Vegas, Nevada. As of earlier this year, they don't exist anymore. But there were kind of two phases of this group. Uh, but originally, they were more of a band unit formed in 2004 by Ryan Ross, Spencer Smith, Brent Wilson, and Brendan Ury. And Brendan Urie is basically the main
0: yeah, uh, the, the, the leader end, of I the think group. Panic at the Disco was just him. I it think was just a to, solo project yeah. for him. Yeah, basically
1: yeah. from. For the first decade or so till about 2015, it was a band, although it's interesting to track, even during that phase, it constantly changed. Mm -hmm. The personnel constantly changed. And then for the last eight years, it was just him. So this record is firmly in that first phase. Came out in 2008. They began recording demos when they were only in high school. And maybe there's more of a context to this, but at least in my reading of it, they're as close to an overnight success as you find in music i mean cuz well, not happened, too long after
0: they have they had the exact right connection at the exact right time i think they were on fueled by ramen at the right. time right
1: uh, the Pete Wentz, and what was he he was i know he was had some involvement in this in
0: well time. and that that was fallout boys label and they they ended up being this sort of um i think atlantic bought them i think that's how it worked but they just or they had a relationship with them and they ended up being this incubator label for
1: they were uh, kind major of an upstream labels. situation to atlantic yeah.
0: So what, what would happen with a label like this is that they are good at building brands and sort of creating fan bases because they were a true independent label. So major labels would use them as like an incubator and and use them to do the first stage of development with the band. And them hitting, first record hitting it like 05 in just, I, I think the first record was 05. That's right. Right, mm-hmm. right around there. It just hit at the, exact right time. And they're good, but this band's great obviously, but they their timing was impeccable.
1: Yeah, and I'm thinking okay, they formed in 2004, they were still in high school when they started making demos. That record came out in 2005. They were still teenagers basically.
0: Yeah, and that's and, when I Write Sins, Not Tragedies came out, which is just a monster, a monstrous hit, that first record.
1: Yeah, and that, that record of Fever, You Can't Sweat Out, that went triple platinum. Yeah. I, mean, I, I wasn't even, I didn't wasn't aware they had that type of commercial success.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, here, hold on. I feel like I got a, I feel like you need to understand that you, that you remember this song. Hold on. Is
1: this Let's, the first, is this from the first record?
0: Yeah, this is like the big hit from the first record. Give it a second.
2: Oh, I've heard this.
1: Yeah, you've heard this song. Right? Yes, I recognize this. Yeah. yeah, but I wouldn't have placed who it was. Yeah, but it's one of those songs that was kind of ubiquitous for a while. Yeah,
0: and and still, if you were to play this song in a bar full of like 35 year olds, like as soon as as soon as this part happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is yeah, so recognizable yeah. that hook, yeah, and, especially. and it, it, it ended up being just a massive, massive, massive hit at the right time.
1: And now, when I hear that, this record is already a considerable departure.
0: Yes, well, it certainly goes more in less in the pop punk, more in the Beatles. It's like it was like yes. th- this album is like a pop punk band found Brit rock, and like all of a sudden became obsessed. Is sort of how this song sounds.
1: It's interesting that they didn't want to stay tethered to that initial sound for too long. Yeah, yeah, and they yeah. wanted to right away evolve beyond it. So starting in 2006, as they were touring behind that first record, this constant upheaval of personnel began. So in 2006, the original bassist Brent Wilson was fired during that tour. So there was some some tumultuous dynamics at play. Yeah. He was replaced by John Walker. Now this record, uh, you probably have a better sense of this in their overall arc, but was a big departure from that first album, and. I guess there was some disagreement in my understanding of it between Brendan Yuri and Spencer Smith and Ryan Ross and John Walker in that at least in my understanding Ryan Ross and John Walker wanted to stay with this direction mm-hmm. uh, creatively and Brendan Yuri and Spencer Smith said no we're going to evolve again we're going to we're going to move into a different direction and I can understand after hearing this record why you would want to stay with this type of thing but yeah. I can also understand that making records the same way over and over again becomes redundant and and you lose your steam that way. So as a result of these creative differences, after this record, Panic! at the Disco became a duo. And it was now Brendan Urie and Spencer Smith. Now here's where, uh, this was one I think I wasn't expecting, but they recruited a bassist named uh, Dawn, Dallin Weeks and the guitarist Ian Crawford. They joined initially as touring musicians and then Weeks eventually became... A full-time member of the band, but the third studio album they basically record as a duo with John Feldman and Butch Walker producing. So oh, I didn't I know that I Butch Walker, that. Walker was part of this. Yeah, yeah,
0: I didn't know either. But so Butch produced. What did Butch? Oh wait, did Butch just do their last record? Maybe he might. Have. go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah,
1: yeah. So it's interesting because, um, you know, so this was a duo, but you know they had these like this production yeah. sort of juggernaut around yeah. them. They then. They then evolved into a three piece, uh, with the three of them: Brendan Urie, Spencer Smith, and Dallin Weeks. And they recorded and released the fourth album, "Too Weird to Live, Too Weird to Die," in two thousand thirteen. So that was officially, effectively, the end of them as a band.
0: As a band, prior
1: to the release of the album, Spencer Smith unofficially left the band. He was having some health issues, some issues with drugs, and at that point, it was a duo. And then in twenty fifteen, Spencer Smith left effectively. At that point. Down weeks left as well, and then for the last run of the band, those last eight years, uh, it was a solo project basically for Brendan Urie. Three records: uh, "Death of a Bachelor," "Pray for the Wicked," and "Viva Lost Vengeance." And after "Viva Lost Vengeance," basically Brendan Urie announced that they would be calling it a day. So, "Viva Lost Vengeance" tour wraps up in March of this year, and that was the end of it. But a pretty remarkable. Run the thing to me that's pretty incredible about this band is that to have the level of commercial success they had, to have had the sort of creative evolution they had, and to have so many personnel changes is pretty impressive to me. And uh, to have gone from a band to basically become a solo project, but never losing the brand. I mean, I'm not sure if their recent records have been as popular Is that accurate to say that they're, they're, I assume they were probably an arena-level band
0: yeah the, it it's interesting to do them at the same time as Even Sevenfold because I think it it was a similar trajectory in from you know from comes on the scene, becomes popular in a mainstream way, evolves quickly, keeps intense credibility with the original audience that allows them to sell a lot of tickets. so yeah, they were an arena band at the end,
1: yeah, and i I wonder what the decision is to move on from that. Because if it was just functioning as a solo project, why move on from that? If if everyone knows it's just a solo project now, I think I think
0: maybe sometimes artists do this. Because I remember when Andrew McMahon did this, where Jack's Mannequin was his project, and then that project ended, and it was you know Andrew McMahon in the wilderness. I think sometimes artists want to give themselves permission to think differently. Instead of like it, it I think especially the the super creative people, there's something symbolic about moving on from whatever this project was to whatever the project will be. And I think it's seem is probably just as just as reg just as what's the word I'm looking for it happens just as much as it does like with a Trent Reznor and a Nine Inch Nails to keep everything as the same name of the project as opposed to doing something differently.
1: Right, and in a sense, uh, sometimes if a band becomes identi- e- oh, even though this is a band that seems to have evolved continually, yeah, for but sure, but they're identified with a certain brand. Mm-hmm. There's still parameters around that that can maybe be limiting. That's the only reason I could think to to walk away from it. But who knows? I could also see. I mean, there being a panic at the disco reunion. What would that mean? That would just mean him. Just him. That- yeah. Taking that name again. <laughs>
0: well, maybe it's just where you go and you do a tour, a tour to celebrate a certain album or something. Right, or maybe like, bring
1: back some of the previous yeah, members. Yeah, yeah,
0: maybe. Yeah, I don't know.
1: So the core lineup on this record, 2008, their second album, was Brendan Urie on vocals, guitars, piano, keyboards, organ, harpsichord, ukulele, and bass. So you get a sense he's a guy who plays everything. Ryan Ross on the guitars, vocals, harmonica, keyboards, piano. John Walker on bass, guitar, guitars, backing vocals. And Spencer Smith on drums, percussion, and backing vocals. So, going through some of the highlights, you mentioned the Beatles thing. That's what I heard, and not even just Beatles, but Sergeant Pepper's is what yeah. I heard. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We're so starving, and nine in the afternoon. Those first two songs, that one-two punch, yeah, just puts you into that Sergeant Pepper's feeling, and it's. It's a number of things to me. It's There's a song suite kind of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Sort of new, unexpected musical moments jump in, or there's a new section that comes that you wouldn't have expected. Uh, there's something about the guitar lines, which remind me of some of George Harrison's and, uh, or a Beatles-esque guitar line.
0: And the tone, I believe. I believe the, tone, the guitar tone exactly. and sound sounds like a Telecaster with uh, a little bit of distortion on it and sounds like you're playing through an older amp or something like there is a tone that that reminds me of that era of of George Harrison as well.
1: It's that very specific thing that you that is so recognizable even the horns that come in and the yep. strings they all it feels like almost borderline like it's paying homage to yeah, Sergeant Pepper's, and to the beginning of Sergeant Pepper's, it's is kind of a parallel with this record.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's a ripoff. I think it is. I think oh, it's, it's definitely on, in the in the, in the
1: level of emulation, not imitation. Yes. but it's 100%. a nice homage.
0: Yeah, hundred percent.
1: And it becomes readily apparent when you hear that that this is just a band that has a very strong sense of melodic and compositional adventurousness. That's what I loved about this album is that it's it's never static. Uh, it doesn't settle. There, there's no real filler on it every song is something kind of fresh. Yeah. And it keeps you engaged, even though it's kind of long. The only criticism I would maybe have. It's
0: a lot of songs.
1: Yeah, I would have maybe kept it to like 12 or something instead of 15.
0: So interesting you say, in that the album is only 49 minutes or something, which is a total fair number of minutes for an album, but you get three quarters of the way through and you're like, man, there's more songs on this. It, right. It would feel a little bit, better if it was a little bit tighter not in terms of length that the length in terms of minutes but like there's there's maybe too too many songs on this
1: and it's not even that i dislike those last few songs mm-hmm. but but you're right there's something about it the psychology of it or something that uh, you didn't need all those additional few ideas maybe to come because there was enough there already yeah around 11 or 12 or something uh what i like about them is we kind of touched on this their band that you can hear the influences but they somehow succeed in making it their own it sounds like of the current moment it doesn't sound like retro or overly nostalgic
0: mm-hmm.
1: another highlight to me was that green gentleman things have changed second
0: on my list I had second a- on my list <laughs>
1: We're almost always like, uh, yeah. I'd say 65 to 70% of the time, we pick the same tunes.
0: Well, that song has such a cool hook, but even though the song does not feel like it is written in a normal pop song structure, but the hook still like, knocks you over the head, I think.
1: Yeah, and they're another band uh, like Avenged Sevenfold, in a different context, that has that hook-writing ability, 100%, say. yeah, definitely. You know, and that song... Also, a parallel to Avenged Sevenfold, they are meticulous in their arrangements. These songs are very well arranged, and both in the music, but also the vocal arrangements and harmonies. Uh, They do some really interesting things. And also, another parallel to Avenged Sevenfold is the the rhythm tracks don't kind of stay static, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, on some level, depending on what the music is, depending on what genre it is, the vibe, there's nothing better than a drummer that just locks into one thing but for this kind of music it's fun when the, the feel changes you even almost feel the tempo moves a little bit at times and that's kind of what i think uh, makes this this song and just this album overall so interesting musically i love
0: northern downpour what
2: one and lonely the is running toward the pain in all the days look back at both feet and that winding me i missed your skin when you were east you clicked your heels and wished for me
1: oh, is yeah.
0: a, <laughs> a, just a right out of like the oasis but uh, the oasis you know Book of Britpop ballad, which is it, it's an amazingly written song. It feels like a touching song, and the lyrics. He's a good lyric writer. He's a really good lyric writer. The 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 two lines. I know the world's a broken bone, but melt your headaches and call it home.
1: <laughs> that's great. <laughs>
0: awesome line. Awesome line. Great tune.
1: Yeah, I, the I think that's also part of what puts this over the top is that he does have that ability to write certain lines or catchphrases that just stay with you Mm -hmm. uh well getting back to even uh that green gentleman there's something about the message of that song that i think is very uh relatable it's uh, to me my interpretation is a song that's sort of it's reflective in the sense that you get older and you have to accept that certain things are going to be unpleasant and difficult to face and you're just going to have to live with that Mm-hmm. you know and there's the kind of the core lines in the hook say you know things have changed for me and that's okay i feel the same i'm on my way that that's simple but simple isn't always simple you know to convey that in a tune like that is uh is a standard. and one other tune i'll single out then i'm curious i imagine you have a few other highlights on this because it's a long record mm-hmm. but this is almost kind of like an interlude but i have friends in holy uh spaces oh, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That, it's it's almost like an interlude. It's a two-minute acoustic song with some fun horn lines. But when I hear that song, that harkens back to early 20th century pop music, like before rock and roll. Mm-hmm. That's like Tin Pan Alley, kind of, uh, that song and the feel of that. And then I love how the recording of that song kind of mirrors that feel, that lo-fi, green. You almost hear the vinyl hiss in the track. And uh, I thought that was a cool production device that they used. I really liked when the day
0: met the night which is the song right after northern downpour there's a little guitar lick in it that uh for some reason you know the song she sells sanctuary by the cult I don't know that one oh no no i got to play it's a guitar lick that reminds me of she sells sanctuary i can't believe we haven't done a, a cult album here let's see if you It's
1: another band that i've heard of i have no clue what they okay, do hold on here maybe that go. should be uh, one of your next let's, picks
0: you might recognize this hold on
1: Oh, this this sounds familiar too. Yeah, that guitar that guitar line. And by
0: the way, another excellent vocalist ended up being like the singer of the Doors. You know. Anyway, now
1: what era is that? Like, when did that come out? So the uh,
0: the cult is a weird band because they came out in the eighties, and they were originally that song. They were originally sort of thought of as like this postmodern band sort of in the Depeche Mode world and or all even that kind U2, of You you too
1: you hear that you hear yes. some of the early U2 so but
0: then their second or their the next album that came out Sonic Temple they were fully in the 80 in the late 80s early 90s hairband um, genre or whatever but there's this there's this lick in when the day meets the night that reminds me of that and then there's this amazing almost carpenters like hook which comes out of nowhere. It does not remind me of Britpop at all. There's there's something almost 70s American you know pop rock about it. And another great use of keys, which ha- which by the way happens in both the Avenged Sevenfold album and the Panic of the Disco album. Just great use of of keys in a complementary way that I think makes the album sound
1: bigger. That's a secret weapon I've noticed in a lot of records, and I, I always expect that in R and B music, but. Mm-hmm. I'm noticing that more and more in the rock records that I really enjoy, it's how the keyboard sounds are used because they're yeah. not normally front and center yeah you know you always think guitars and the vocal are way up front. So even the drums the way they might be mixed, you'll feel the keyboards in rock music to me and especially these kind of records are a little more to the periphery but when it's done right like on this album mm-hmm. uh, it's it's kind of what puts the production over the, over the top because a lot of times it's more like an atmosphere builder kind of thing. And the the we always talk about
0: first songs on albums but we rarely talk about last songs on albums and <laughs> even though this album is has a little too many songs i think going out with mad as rabbits which is a, a just a jam feels like a a party almost feels like the the final song of a concert sticking it there i think does does make up for the fact that the the album is maybe one or two songs too long by just ending with a a, basically like a a track that sounds like a party to me
1: yeah and again that could have maybe just been tracked 12 or (laughs) yes good point
0: it could have been the last song of the album whether whether it was 15 tracks or 12 tracks but that's
1: not to you know diminish the record it's a great album and you're right that is a monster we talk about monster openers that's a monster monster closer closer so we don't talk about that as much but uh you know i think it's interesting that even though we love albums i think we both i mean i think you feel the same way like i like a short album though i don't want a 16 track album that that Something about even seeing that makes me a little bit annoyed. Do you do you feel the same way? Uh,
0: annoyed, maybe not, but certainly like,
1: uh, yeah. Okay, well, yeah. that's almost kind of the same thing. Yeah,
0: like, <laughs> like you're all right. It's almost like all right, you're 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 pushing it. Like you're, I let's see, let's see what you got here. So, to but, me, there's
1: nothing more satisfying than nine or ten tracks, even eight tracks sometimes. But like, let's say ten tracks. Yeah. and all killer no filler and you know runs about 40 minutes that that to me is perfect
0: In out especially when you got to listen to two albums over the week
1: right that's true times. for our purposes <laughs> as well
0: <laughs> well good selection this week please send us your selections in the way that i told you to and there are, the links are in the description of the pod until next time we will we're gone we're done we're out see ya. bye stay
1: free my goose